Hello everyone and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast where we keep you up to speed with the latest news and views in health tech. Now, if you are a regular listener, you might have realised that I have relatively unintentionally carved out an unofficial segment every week where I get on a soapbox and talk about women's health. But this week we are making it official with our much anticipated guest that joins James, Indy and I. So I'm really excited to welcome Michelle Griffin. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very well and thank you for inviting me. I'm excited and I'm super pleased that you have this new segment on women's health. I'm loving that, Jess. So uh, well done you. Thank you. I've yeah taken up the gauntlet and much for many an uncomfortable but interesting discussion and debate. It's always good to have a debate here and obviously we need to fly the flag for women's health, health, health and equity and all of those good things. Um, but yeah, lots to talk about today. So James, Indy, have you got any highlights this week? How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. It's been a really lovely week. We've done our wins of the week earlier and PR's been a highlight, so... Uh, that and, and Pigeon Podcast. Looking forward to it. Nice. Yeah, it's good. Looking forward to the weekend. Although um, one of my friends messaged me, he's uh, Australian and loves to party and wants to go out tonight. So I'm uh, slightly nervous in anticipation of that. Having just come back from the World Health Organization and the dangers of alcohol, um, I feel slightly uh, hypocritical uh, descending on the pub with a very excitable Australian man, but we'll see We'll see how that goes. Um, so eagerly anticipating. Well, we'll come on to talk about the WHO a little bit later, but let's get cracking. Our first story is brought to us by none other than the infamous Dr. Michelle Griffin. Her latest column for the BBC is talking about the new science in menopause and why it might actually just be in our interests to delay the menopause. Michelle, what is all of this about? There's some great biological science going on right now, um, really diving into what exactly is happening, not only during perimenopause, so that whole phase that leads up to the point of menopause, but actually before then, and interestingly, like what is triggering this? Like, why does somebody go through and start perimenopause at a particular time? We know that it differs massively between women, and we don't really understand why. Um, and we also know that women experience many different symptoms and different intensity of symptoms, and it can last for a long or a short period. And, and we just, all of these questions are unknown. And so there's some great work looking into what exactly is going on in this kind of communication signaling between the ovaries and the brain? And a real kind of look at, you know, we recognize that the ovaries actually age really, really quickly, much faster than any other tissue in the rest of our body as a woman and also in men. And we don't understand why that would be the case. Like, what advantage is that bringing us, or what does that enable something to happen? But we know that because they age so quickly, that's why on average women start perimenopause probably around their early 40s and go through the point of menopause at 50, 51. And then that really is the beginning of a much faster, significant aging process when you look at 
our total kind of all of our organs and everything that's going on in our body. So you're thinking about our heart health, brain health, bone health, and much, much more. And so it's a kind of from 20,000 feet now, let's look at if we could delay menopause, um, then potentially we could delay or even prevent the beginning of this kind of trigger of a much longer aging process that has such a significant impact in that moment of a woman experiencing perimenopausal symptoms, but also their overall mid to longer term health when you think about that their increase in heart, brain and bone health significantly jumps up as they go through perimenopause and at postmenopause. I mean, I find all of this absolutely fascinating. And as someone who considers themselves relatively clued up on women's health and, you know, the biology behind it and all those kinds of things, every time I read these articles, I learn something new, which I, it just blows my mind. And what you were saying there about ovaries aging faster. So your article says that ovaries age up to five times faster. I calculated that that makes my ovaries 160 years old. That's terrifying. And it's amazing that for most women in their 20s and 30s, they're still working incredibly well. So that actually brings up a really interesting dynamic that even though they are aging faster, they are working at this kind of equivalent older age much better than a lot more of our other organs. I mean, I'm not sure of how many people are, are, are fully functioning in way over 100 years. So, yeah, it, it's, it's incredible, really. And it just, you know, really highlights how we just don't understand the basics here. And what I mean about that basic biological understanding of what is going on with this tissue and how the ovaries are operating as a real control center, um, speaking to not only the brain, but likely many other organs. And that is obviously through the hormones like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and we're well aware of that. There's still gaps there, but there's probably lots of other communication networks that are going on. Um, and, and it, yeah, I mean, you, it, it runs all the way back to thinking, well, what's the trigger to puberty and what's going on there mm. to kind of switch those ovaries on at that point? Well, I also didn't realise that only humans and female-toothed whales experience the menopause. I just assume that all other female animals experience that. And do you think that that is a biological thing? Or do you think that's because most other animals just don't have the lifespan that we have and therefore don't get to that point? Because let's not forget, like the menopause itself is relatively new as a concept in the way that we understand it, because it's only in the past several hundred years that women have lived long enough to experience the menopause in any meaningful way. So is it that, or is it something that's, fundamentally biologically different that means that we go through it where other animals don't yeah i mean in, i'd love to have the answer i mean that would be fantastic but in short we don't know there's a multitude of hypotheses as to why the menopause would be happening in mu humans um and and now an understanding of those subset of whales that also experience it like why is it not even across all whales like why is it only a subset um what we don't know is you know 
where are we at? Is it is it a hangover? And as you say, now that we're living much longer, this will probably, you know, move and shift if not, you know, so so basically if we were only living to 40, then many women would never have experienced perimenopause, let alone menopause. Um, as we living longer, double if not further than that, then will we see a shift um, in, in what's happening? I don't know. We haven't caught up biologically to see that yet. Um, we know that fertility is being pushed further out, but we recognise that we don't see other changes with the body to maintain and kind of really um, make the environment for pregnancy easier or any more beneficial for the older mum, i.e. somebody who's not in their 20s or 30s, and we're actually looking at people in their 40s and maybe a bit older. So we we don't fully understand what's going on yet, in short, and, and we don't know why we had it to begin with or how we can, you know, look to predict it will change in the future as we're living older and our environment that we're living in is changing as well. One of the things that I think is so interesting from this article and from what I've learned as well is I didn't have an understanding of how much menopause can affect all different processes in the body. Um, I've been doing some research recently into the effect of menopause um, and its overlap on, on gut health and the microbiome. And there as well, po- post-menopause and, and pre-menopause, that lack of estrogen left level dropping has quite a substantial effect on altering the gut microbiome and then that itself is causing further effects um, to gastrointestinal problems um, and, and mental health as well and so I think my sort of second question there is at the moment is there anything that we know that can help prolong menopause is there anything actionable that people can do or is that very much in the early stages of research yeah, I think there's a couple of interesting points there. I think um, I was just this week, actually, I was doing a um, corporate educational event on menopause. And I was just, you know, we talk about there's a wide ranging number of symptoms and signs that you get throughout perimenopause. And, and often people will just leave it as that. But I'm really keen to try and explain what's going on behind this so that people kind of understand what is actually happening and can actually therefore apply it to themselves or other people like friends, family that they know. And what I try to do is say that, look, this whole idea that is very culturally accepted is that, you know, the whole reproductive system, the whole hormones, if you do even know about estrogen, um, possibly progesterone, testosterone, all of that, you know, in lay terms thinks that that just becomes a bit of a mix mash and is giving you your ability to reproduce. And in actual fact, I'm really trying to break that understanding and say, look, really, it's a lot, lot more sophisticated than that. It isn't purely a reproduction facility that women like have that capability. It's actually that that female body and mind and behaviours is is more than likely significantly related to the impact of the ovaries and the hormones it produces. But as I say, probably the ovaries are involved in a lot more of the processes that we don't fully yet understand. And so when you kind of think about that, then that's why it then makes sense that actually 
you're going to be getting changes in how your gut works when you're going through perimenopause and that, you know, there's something probably going on there. And and when you speak to women, they'd be able to tell you for years. Yeah, of course, because I've really noticed that, you know, my gesture, my digestion has changed significantly or my immune function, which we know more and more is linked to the gut microbiome. But it's a kind of cascade, isn't it now that like, oh, you know, I don't have such great um, resilience against the kind of bugs that my kids come home with, for example. Um, and we know we're probably, is that linked to your gut microbiome? Yes, there's good evidence there. But it's like the reduction in the estrogen and the fact that estrogen doesn't just go from high to low sort of overnight. It takes years and there's fluctuating levels within that time. Those fluctuations will be having an effect on the gut. Um, and we definitely know that happens in the brain. And there's some great research um, from a team headed up by Dr. Lisa Moscone that has looked at women pre-perimenopause, so typically 20s and 30s, women during the perimenopause and women post-menopause. And it's really interesting to see that what she's been doing is actually scans of the brain to show different levels of activity likely linked to different levels of estrogen because their brain is full of estrogen receptors. And this kind of gives rise to those symptoms, we think, that probably relate to brain fog, loss of concentration, reduction in processing power. And yet there's a compensation mechanism that kicks in that post-menopause, that activity resumes, if not increases, to pre-perimenopause levels. So it's absolutely fascinating. And it really just shows that this whole idea that we used to bulk in, and I definitely have grown up with it, of like, oh, it's just your hormones, is like a massive misnomer, because we just, it's just being kind of barely touching the surface of quite what is going on here. Yeah. And I guess to, to build on that, and then to bring it back around to health tech, if there's so much that we don't yet know, about women's health in general, but particularly around the menopause and women's experiences of that, how how can innovators and and those building these health tech solutions, whether it's you know women's health technology or whether it's health tech more broadly, where should they begin in factoring in some of these experiences which are difficult to quantify we don't have loads of data on and we don't well understand because it is super relevant to health outcomes to health experiences of lots of different people in lots of different ways and yet you know very often we take a not a one-size-fits-all approach but more of a homogeneous approach to developing a solution where actually we know that these really important life phases whether you're male or female are really influential and actually should and not necessarily in all circumstances should be considered in that process what what do you think that you know those those people who are building those innovations can and should be doing if anything Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point. I think fundamentally, um, and this is very much, I'm a big, big advocate of this, is that you have to, as an innovator, be, you know, very aware of the science 
that and the need to incorporate the science. And a lot in women's health is focused more on, I would say, about well-being. And there's a lot at the moment in the current marketplace. And the trend is around consumer goods. And I think, um, you know, that direct-to-consumer business model. And I think that maybe partly funders have been attracted by that, um, looking at things such as, you know, cornering markets and becoming a market leader and return of investment. Um, but as as lots of people say to me um, in discussions, is that, you know, science is exciting, but it takes time, you know, and people aren't turning around these massive breakthroughs every day. And therefore, that is a real juxtaposition when you think at the funding. So as an innovator, I really try to say, look, I know that you're on a timeline and that's set very much by your funders. And they've obviously got a business to do themselves, of course. But you've got to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, where am I including the science here? Am I making sure I am up to date as most as possible? Am I ensuring that my network is involving people from the research side, but also from the clinical side? So I can get a sense of what's our knowledge and understanding coming up on one side and what's actually women are experiencing and how are we helping them and what outcomes are we having on an individual and on a, you know, a national population level? Where are things working and where aren't they? Um, and just to be kind of very tech product first and kind of have your blinkers on means that we are really, I think, missing a lot of opportunities because they're not including actually a lot of the knowledge that we have already or not looking to build bridges with people who are generating that knowledge or have access to that data. The only thing that I'd be comfortable adding at this point is that I from a personal perspective feel like I'm learning a lot and actually just on a learning journey of of the menopause and its effects and what women need and what the value actually could even be of technology which is sort of the point that you're getting out there Jess about like so what is the and it isn't clear and it just it seems to me from what's being said that and actually what I feel personally which is that the first gap to be addressed is an information one and actually making people very aware of frankly what it even is and I think only then is there going to be greater understanding around it which would lead to better behaviors around it and the way that we treat each other and the way that we treat I mean, even then I was about to say the condition, it's not condition, it's not pathology, it's part of normal aging. And actually it's part of normal life. It's, it's a physiological process. It's not a pathological process. And so even that, you know, and, and, and making everyone in a workplace, and, and it's equated a lot with work, isn't it? The, the challenges that can come and, and et cetera, it's equated quite a lot with the workplace and, you know, companies like Pepe come to mind and things like that. So I think there is this this thing about education of an entire workforce that can then understand and then understand what we might do as a result and therefore us as a group can all become happy and more productive essentially. So I, I don't know, it's a bit garbled, but like I feel like I'm I feel like I'm just sit here sit here learning from people that know far more than me and actually I'll comment I'll comment more when I've done more of that learning myself. 
interestingly, I caught up with some some clients this week and a couple of new companies have just secured some funding in the women's health place so it's like yippee fantastic great and I'm really really am pleased with them um but both companies who have gone to very different funders have said um oh you know it, they just had got so much pushback from oh it's just a really crowded marketplace and I think this is another element that feeds into it. Like, oh, my God, we, we, we have solved this now. And I think, like, the understanding of how much of a gap there is. Like, I can't even get my head around it. And I've spent over 20 years in women's health. I catch myself thinking, you know, I thought this, but actually, you know, I think I thought that wrong. I just accepted that without really recognizing that I didn't know it. It wasn't evidence-based. We need, there's a gap here. We need to fill that gap. Who's doing what in this space? Um, you know, and I think you don't know what you don't know. And no, a truer set statement is that you just, and, and it's dangerous. It really is. Yeah. I, I just think that ultimately, you know, whatever gender you are, we're all on this journey, figuring out what whether it's menopause or what, you know, female hormones, the impact through life, whatever that is, I think whether it's personal or, you know, for us, very professional as well, you know, we're all on that journey to try and understand and figure that out. And we're learning all the time. And it sounds like the science is evolving all the time as well. And, uh, you know, as you rightly said, you know, it can take something, I think the, the, the number is like 17 years from initial research through to implementation in clinical practice. And that's a huge amount of time that, you know, and by the, by the time that that research then comes to clinical practice out of date anyway, because 17 years is so long, but there's clearly a role for technology to play in, in closing that gap in helping us to understand what we don't already know, in educating us when we do have that information. But then at the other end, when we're thinking about how to address some of these challenges and issues and the problems that we're looking to solve with technology, making sure that that education, that understanding is then filtered into and incorporated into those solutions. But ultimately, it's all a journey and we're all on it together. So Let's see where we end up. But I think that does take us really nicely onto our second story. As I said, the perfect follow-on, our next story is brought to us by Femtech Insider. And it says longevity startup Inside Tracker launches women's health extension, women's health span extension with new female biomarker analysis. So I guess, you know, we've been talking about hormones and what they all mean, impact and the biology. Let's talk about the technology and what's going on here. Michelle, what do you make of this one? Well, when I was reading it, I was like a bit of a puppy, like scrolling down because there was lots of blurb and it was like, and we're going to be measuring biomarkers. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but which ones? Which ones have you chosen to come out with and say, this is like, you know, our big hoo-ha, we're doing the ultimate plan, which sounds very exciting, and it's going to extend women's health span. So I was like, what, you know, what are you kind of putting uh, a kind of milestone and saying this is what we should look at? And it's like, drum roll, da-da-da, estradiol, progesterone, and um, T3. 
TSH, so thyroid stimulating hormone. And I mean, I'm not surprised. They are pretty like, I mean, barn door kind of hormones. Um, But but I was, I don't know, I was just a bit like, hmm. But, you know, my mind always, like, I'm still always that clinician. So my mind always jumps to, okay, so someone's got this, they're doing their ultimate plan, and they come and see me and they say, look, this is how my estradiol and progesterone have been tracking over the last three months. What do you think, Dr. Griffin? I'm like, I don't know, because <laughs> yeah. the tech means you can track it. But what? I mean, I we haven't even got this. Like, this is, I mean, would you agree, James? Like, the amount of times people can track something and then you're like, well, that is grand, but I don't know how to interpret that. I mean, I'd, I'd be clueless at the best times, let alone let alone if it's these <laughs> these hormones. I mean, goodness me, it's like it's like when someone comes and says, like, "Oh, they're they're like eosinophils have done something over the last four weeks." You're like, "What? What do I do with that?" Like, what? Like, or just there's so many of those blood tests that you're just like, "What on earth is this?" Like, hematocrit, this and grams per deciliter of some not like what? Like, it, yeah. How does this correlate to real life? Exactly. Exactly. How does this correlate to real life? How does this correlate to what you are experiencing and what, you know, and then someone's doing something, but they feel perfectly well, but someone else has got a different like data and they've got a whole list of symptoms. And I'm none the wiser by now knowing what these three markers, or as you say, like isophenols are doing, like it just, it doesn't help me. Um, And you know, and I think it's really interesting um, because um, from a genomics point of view, and, and I did way back when genomics was going to save the NHS. And, and that was like one turn of the cycle. Um, and, and maybe people listening will remember that was the big hoo-ha. Well, you know, genomics has got a lot cheaper, more accessible. It's going to save the NHS. So I was one of the guinea pig cohorts that got founded, um, funded by Health Education England to go and do, you're a clinician and you obviously haven't covered genomics and you're not, you don't do anything in genetics. So go and do like basically a master's in genomics. So it's genomics medicine. And, and it was really good. I have to say it was absolutely fantastic. Really great on understanding the basic science that sat behind it, but also about how does this transfer? How does this get implemented in the NHS? And one thing that I always giggled about, and I totally understand, of course, why they have to do it, but they have this thing on the reports, which is a variant of unknown significance of like, we found something that's different, but we don't know what that means. And I thought, man, I wish I had that in Obsangaini, that I could go, I found something. It's not normal as we know it, but who knows what that means? Mm. And I just feel that... This is great. I love the idea that we can be much more personalized and people can be tracking data points and understanding, not understanding, sorry, knowing whether it's going up and down, but understanding it, understanding its significance. And as you say, James, correlating it to what somebody is experiencing and being able to then provide a solution and understand and know what to do with regard to a management plan whether that's to assure you know reassure someone or whether that's to start stop do something um, more interventional then we still just don't know 
Mm. We don't know. And th- and that isn't just in women's health. As I said, like in genomics, you know, there's so much of things that we, we don't understand the significance of right now. Mm. I think that was something that I sort of took from this article. The first thing being... I love the concept. I I love some of the things that they've written about in this article. Women have previously been massively underrepresented scientific research, and especially in the houseplant industry, it's predominantly featured males at the forefront of the conversation. I mean, that's so true, and at least they are making steps to make a difference there. But as you just said, I think especially for end users and women who aren't going to be as even clued up as um as clinicians as well how much are they going to take this as gospel how much are they going to sort of take what these personalized plans are and how much are they going to sort of stress that that then needs to be the exact way that they um live their life and abide by it and follow all of the recommendations and then is that going to be accurate and are they going to be um sort of expecting better outcomes than potentially this this plan could um promise yeah i think that that point about unknown the unknown significance like a point of unknown significance i think again when you think about women's health conceptually there's so much fear around it particularly when you talk about something like fertility right you know socially culturally um you know there is that you know old but still omnipresent um narrative that you know women exist to reproduce um that i'm sure you know we all struggle with whether or not we decide to reproduce or not and i think especially as you age and you're thinking about potentially starting a family or not like your fertility whether or not you would be able to to get a result with no context that says there's a point of unsignificant, un, unknown significance, that's really frightening. And, you know, I'm sure, and this is actually a question I ask about most of these um, B2C test kits that, that, that we talk about, what is on the other end of that? Because even if it's for a brief moment, as I said, that's really frightening until I get the counselling that tells me what I need to do and what that actually means And they may reassure me and say it's nothing to worry about. But the fact is that is still going to play on my mind that there's this point of unknown significance that it could be something really important, but I have no idea about. But also what I found interesting about the article was that it doesn't really talk about why they've chosen. I mean, broadly, we can come to some conclusions, but why they've chosen those specific hormones and actually the impact of those hormones on increasing lifespan because that's what it that's what they're claiming to do is increase the female lifespan so how how does having that information increase lifespan and how does how do those hormones correlate to that as well um and i'm sure you know there is there's research there would have to be otherwise i I can't see that they would got this far have got this far but i think those are really interesting things that for me in this in this story as we're talking about this news and what could be potentially really exciting progress and innovation is missing. Um, so, yeah, I think it's almost like a little bit underwhelming because the so what is missing for me. I think to play devil's advocate just a little bit, it is a short article. There is context somewhat lacking, but there are a couple of things in this article that I think speak to the 
uh, I guess, the nobility of the cause. Because they do say that by analyzing your body's biomarkers inside Tracker, which is the company, or the products, provides an objective assessment of the current state of your of your well-being. Then our AI-powered platform uses findings from thousands of scientific peer-reviewed publications and over 10 billion billion, that is, biomarker data points to generate a custom set of actionable recommendations and insights. And it then goes on to say that by giving women access to testing and personalized analysis of critical critical hormone levels, interesting, and the science behind their results, Inside Track is equipping and empowering women to actively participate in conversations and evidence-based solutions regarding their health. So we can debate how critical estradiol, TSH are, um, well, in some things they are, I guess, and that is debatable. But I think it's a noble cause, right? And I think there's something here as well about by just doing it and by just putting that data out into the ether, it does then force some sort of, well, we'll have to analyze it if there's so many people coming to us with it, or indeed that data now exists, let's analyze it, let's learn from it. And so I think it is still a positive move if I am to be devil's advocate. It could certainly be argued that way. And I, and I think that, yeah, okay, while it might not be the finished product, might while, whilst it might create some uncertainty, whilst it might promise more than it can actually deliver perhaps, at least it is the start of more information. And we've just spoken in the last story about the fact that this is a frontier, the fact that we don't have as much information as we would like. And I think this, you know, in your segue, you said, you know, this moves on nicely. I think it does. I think this does move that conversation on nicely. And this article doesn't have all the answers. I think there are more answers in existence than exist in this article, but perhaps, um, yeah, perhaps a lot more does need to be, written behind this before any of us are wildly convinced of its uh conversion into real life yeah and i just jump in to defend like having experienced this it's i mean one they just um often articles are just looking for news bites so totally right. understand that but also you don't necessarily want to be jumping into the depths of what you your algorithm you're building and how you're training that um, because that's actually really sits probably within your IP. Mm. And so I do completely get the bind they're in that they don't want to be, because if they're starting to say, look, we've been doing some deep research and we've actually found some linkages between if you are monitoring X mm. over this period of time, then we can start to tell this. that That's their IP. So I totally get it. Um, but I think just going back to my earlier point of like not having blinkers on and being open to, as an innovator, being open to the researcher, like the research that exists and also what's going on and making sure your network is rich and well-connected to people who are in this space. It's to actually help build that algorithm to be as proficient and useful and significant as it possibly can be. Um, and, and I think, yeah, there's definitely a data gap and this is generating some data that will move into that gap. I think there's another issue, though, about that we are generating tons and tons of data mm. and we have an ability to 
generate data far more than an understanding and a sort of guidance to how to interpret that data. Yes, we have that practical like processing power, but at the end of the day, you know, and been thinking about just AI overall, we've got to be able to understand that we are leading this, you know, as humans, you know, and so it's very much, you know, rubbish in, rubbish out. If we don't know where we should go, then all this processing power is is very much limited. Um, so we've got to have an open mind when we're looking at the data we're generating, how it's to be used. And, you know, as you said, let's not pretend it's something that it potentially isn't. Let's not overpromise about what exactly it could show. But I'm all up for for basically this work being done, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think ultimately, for me personally, as someone who would be in the market for this kind of product, I think I'm always going to be looking for the evidence. And I appreciate that the evidence is not going to be in this single article. And, you know, you go in, do your research. But you want it to be underpinned by that. And I think there is a real balance between what you both said there. Obviously, IP needs to be protected, but you you want to understand why this is the the product and I guess the test kit that's going to give me the information I need to empower me in my own health and help me to better understand my own experience as a woman and and her health as well. Um, and so I think it's that, but I think also you make a really good point that there's this data gap. Despite us cre- creating loads of data, there's this data and information gap. This is going to help us to close that. But also we know that in healthcare data sits in a lot of silos. So is there something to be said for considering like open sourcing data, for example, where IP still remains protected, but actually the value of that data can still be extracted and shared so that there is that collective learning and we are moving that frontier, as James talked about. And, you know, you raise important points there about, you know, it's o- the data that goes in is only as the data that comes out is only as good as the data that goes in. And, you know, we need to make sure that data is representative and it is good data. Um, and I think perhaps by having some kind of open source framework, what that does is it it, may, it, may, it perhaps reduces duplication of people, you know, creating the same data. But also people can extract new insights from the data already exists and then data becomes inherently more valuable because data is also expensive to produce, whether or not you're doing it for a B2C product or, you know, B2B, that, that data is, is valuable and expensive, as I said. So if you can extract it from somewhere else that already has it, then all the better because you're already a step forward. So I think it's I think it's super interesting. And I think that there's a lot going on in, in this space that is genuinely really helping us to understand women's health and hormones. And not and even beyond that, there's so many test kits, you know, gut health, microbiome, you know, all of those kinds of things. And it's all really valuable if you're that way inclined and you're interested in it but equally from that kind of data understanding innovation and academic perspective I think that there's so much that we can learn um but it is exciting I'm just really looking forward to seeing the evidence around it and understanding if I'm going to invest my money which one am I going to invest in which is going to give me the most value All right. Our third story comes to us from WHO, who are calling for safe and ethical AI for health. And we seem to have slipped into our 
other favorite topic of conversation on this podcast. Um, obviously, AI more broadly, um, and I'm sure that uh, generative AI and LLMs is going to come up with the likes of ChatGPT, Bard, MedPalm2, and all the rest of it. But James, Michelle, as clinicians, um, past, present, future, um, what, what do you make of this one? I, I'm really pleased to see it. Um, and I'm really pleased to see it from WHO. Um, I think it's definitely been needed. Um, and I'm really pleased that they've come out. And I, what I love about this article is they've been very clear about what they're concerned about, what they're looking for, what good potentially looks like. But I think it's come across in a very like user-friendly manner. It's not calling out anything. It's not jumping to conclusions. Um, but it's just saying that we need to be cautionary here. And I think that's very wise. And I, you know, for the foreseeable, will always sit on that side of the fence. I think what's particularly pertinent is they talk about the rapid growth and uptake of LLMs, such as ChatGPT, and the fact that this has spread so quickly into so many sectors being used by so many people for lots of different ways. And in recognition of this, they're then saying, look, how does that then affect the healthcare setting um, on an individual and a population basis? And, and I think, you know, at a time where I think just this morning, Rishi Sunak has announced that potentially more guardrails need to be in place around AI as a whole. I think, and you know, there's been lots of stories over the last few weeks, if not longer, of just saying, you know, we need to just put a slight, um, you know, pause or even not as much of that, just thinking about how we need to go about things. And, and what they had commented on in this article, which I feel very strongly about is the you know going back to my point about rubbish in rubbish out is is the the effect of biased data um and and you know i worked at public health england significantly in the national data registry where they're collecting all the data um and when i say all the data i do really mean with regard to health because they have very specific guidance and consent from the government to collect health data um, and we can then pull data from a number of sources it's not just talking about the electronic patient record from the NHS and those sources are pulling in data and then we're trying to match that back up and really trying to assess what's going on and getting a picture and interpreting that and you know there is People don't recognise how biased data is just in the way that you go about collecting things. And we looked a lot around differences in data collection on cancer and the way that just because of the way that your healthcare system is built and things get processed, you automatically collect data in a certain way. So, for example, as a clinician, you can say to your patient in front of you, we think this is it. These are what the symptoms are looking like. Da, 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 da. But the gold standard you want for diagnosis when it comes to cancer is pathology. Now, that may be a biopsy. It may be a specimen after you've done surgery and operated and removed that tumour. But you want pathology. And when it comes to our data systems in the UK used by Public Health England, we take that pathology date 
as a set point in a journey of, 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 you know, in that patient's journey. And then how long they live is there's a set kind of window that we look at as how long does that patient live after we've got that pathology diagnosis. Now, in other countries across the world, they will, because of their healthcare system, because culturally how they work, they will say their date of diagnosis is the first point at which any clinician has suggested that that person has cancer. So that would be equivalent here in the UK. That would be someone going and speaking to their GP and saying, look, I'm coughing up a lot of blood. I'm a very heavy smoker. Um, this has been going on for a few months. I've lost weight. And like literally you're listing off all the red flags of this is lung cancer until we proved otherwise. And in another country, that would be the first date of diagnosis. But in the UK, we wait until that pathology report so then somebody theoretically would that same person would live longer in another country because they've gone from the time at which they went to a GP until their point of death. Whereas in the UK, we go from the time of the pathology, which obviously happens after the GP. And if we think about a two week wait and then we've got to get your scan and then da, 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 then you are theoretically losing time, which, of course, you haven't. But it's this bias in data that relates to how we collect data, how we store that data, how we analyze data. It's not just saying, oh, I'm only going to collect the data I want to collect. It's just an unconscious bias that's built out of the framework and the systems and the data collection methods that we have built up in healthcare, which differ significantly even across one whole body of the NHS, just that different hospitals do things in different ways. And I think that's something that, you know, I'm really pleased to see that's been pulled out and that we understand a little bit more about, you know, the the limitation, but also the ability of any data that we get out, any any kind of interpretation that we get out on the on the back end. Yeah, just coming at it from a slightly different angle, I guess, like th- this article for me is good it's it's fine like I, I would expect the world health organization to come out and say these things that look that i mean what they're saying is look well i'll read it here they're calling for rigorous oversight that's needed for the technologies to be used in safe effective and ethical ways and those uh those oversights and those things to consider are the fact that the data may be biased as you've talked about responses can appear authoritative and plausible but maybe completely incorrect or contain serious errors. Um, maybe trained on data for which consent might not have been previously provided, and as such, they may not protect sensitive data. Fine. Um, that large language models can be misused to generate and disseminate highly convincing disinformation, um, which the public might not be able to differentiate. Um, and they are recommending that policymakers ensure patient safety and protection while the technology firms work to commercialize LLMs. So as I say, it, it's not it's not going to stop the press, this, that the World Health Organization has called for it. But I think what is important is the speed of this messaging coming out. So I think historically we've seen that regulators will lag behind. And Elon Musk recently, who's expressed his concerns with AI more broadly, he has said 
uh, quite frankly, that the regulations often only come into place after the bad thing has happened, the seriously bad thing. And that's what we really don't want to happen here. And so I think the importance of organizations like the WHO and and like governments and policymakers and and regulators broadly, MHRA, et cetera, in the UK and FDA, et cetera, like... The, the, the important thing here is speed and it's speed to stay on top of what these are doing, how they are being used and to clamp down incredibly quickly where they are being used in one of these manners that the World Health Organization has warned us against. I think it is also interesting to extrapolate some of this ill feeling or concern to the large language models actually more broadly and the conversations about AI more broadly and this sort of existential crisis or like uh, AGI, I think they're calling it, where the AI just basically becomes sentient or has the ability to uh, literally have human-like intelligence um, and, and people warning us against that as well. And and But, but again, it is, it is, I suppose pleasing for me to see that the the world talk the, the who is doing it but also the tech leaders too like sam altman like the founder of OpenAI, who have built chat gpt it seems like most people are calling for regulation and, and I, I don't think there are many minds against this i would even say that on the whole technology companies aren't going to want to fall foul of this i think the only thing that we'll need to curb is the enthusiastic new entrepreneur or even clinician that thinks they should use it or could use it and and those that might make a mistake that, as we've seen here, it can appear authoritative and plausible to an end user. That might be a clinician who thinks they can genuinely make some efficiencies in their career, in their life, in their work. And so the speed of messaging and the how well the the extent to which these messages are disseminated to everyone for whom this matters for i think is incredibly important and yeah the fact that we've picked it up and put it in our newsletter and it's going as far as we can get it with our reach is good but i would uh, i want to see this these warnings become mainstream yeah and one thing i'd jump in i was thinking um around this is that you know yes we need the regulation as well I totally agree. But I think as well, I'm really feeling like I need like a trip advisor for LLMs, like what works, what's really good for this. You know, if I need this kind of thing, this would be really good. If um, if it's really random, then this one would be really good, you know, and, and really get a sense of how it works, what's good about it, what are the drawbacks, what do I need to be aware of? I think that's more like the user-friendly side of it than the regulatory side of it. I think we need both, for sure, Um, because that will really help the user to determine what to use and when. And in that way, that's kind of adding an additional sense of trying to prevent any misinformation or, or misuse coming out because you know if if you're looking for a quiet spot on holiday you don't necessarily go to Magaluf and maybe you need TripAdvisor to tell you that you know if you don't know it already so I think that's the thing and it's so foreign to so many people you need somebody to be able to say this is what this is good for um, and I think that would be really helpful addition as well. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think part of the problem is that there are just so many unknowns with this and that it's come at us so hard and so fast. And there's new um, generative AI tools popping up all of the time. And I think, you know, in in healthcare, we're inherently cautious, aren't we? And we know that Grace said last week, we cannot move fast and break things because the consequences are life or death. And I think, you know, ultimately that trip advisor would be incredibly valuable, but also I guess the challenge, and it's the same with regulation. It's so hard to keep up with what's going on. Um, it, there's, there's something new every day. And I, I don't, I don't actually think even the people that that have developed some of these tools know the potential, the usability, the full limitations and that kind of thing. And so again, we're, we're learning all the time, but I, I think, you know, as James said, and in this article, you know, WHO saying that there's real promise and real potential, and we should be incredibly optimistic about it. But we have to exercise the same caution that we would with any other kind of technology, any other kind of medical innovation, medicine, treatment, that we ha- we have to treat it the same way. But I think it's very easy to run away with it because everything is so fast moving um and i think that you know that there that is the case with technology more broadly but i think it's even more evident with generative ai because it's it's learning all the time it's evolving second by second and day by day and so you know by the time this podcast comes out something new will have popped up already some new use case probably another platform Um, and I'm losing count at this point of how many there are and you know it's really exciting but I think it's also encouraging as as we say to see that you know these organizations are showing optimism but exercising caution and I think that's something that we should all be doing and ultimately you know we can explore these in a really safe space right now and really understand how we can use them in the right way safely securely to have real impact in in people's lives and in the future of healthcare and i think it's really exciting um and it sounds like you know these kinds of organizations that perhaps people would criticize previously for putting barriers in the way and perhaps you know restricting innovation are looking to be part of that journey and come on that with us to understand how we do that in the right way so yeah Let's see what happens. Let's see what what Monday brings us. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, Um, definitely. And just my last point on that, I think, you know, as you were speaking, it just made me think about, you know, as they said, let's apply the same principles that we do with medical devices, with medication, et cetera. But the big difference here, and we've not experienced this before, is that it's going straight into the hands of patients potentially and and that's a whole new world of like there is no like phases of trials where we'll do Mm -hmm. like in a in the cells first and then maybe move up to animals and then move to humans and it's so massively monitored and kind of um you, you know tracked all the way through and looking for any potential issue concern um and then even when that all gets through and if we think of everything that there is so much drop off between sort of phase one two trials all the way to a phase four trial and then when it does get out there if it does then we're looking at a massive post-market surveillance develop you know generating real world evidence 
And those would go on for like five, 10 plus years. And it's like, as you say, between us recording this podcast, it going out and Monday morning, who knows what would have happened? And that's just the speed at which in medicine we've never worked at. And and it's it's it is a whole new world for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, we said earlier, right, that it, it's well known that it takes 17 years to get from research through to implementation in clinical practice. This is an entirely new ballgame. It's practically 17 seconds. It, it, and, and there is good reason for that time span. As you said, it's the rigorous testing, it's the understanding, it's recognising when things don't work and therefore, you know, stopping it. Um, and so never before have we been able to get from idea to implementation as fast as as we can today. And that's exciting and terrifying all at the same time. So, yeah, let's see what Monday morning brings. We'll report back and, uh, yeah, let's see what next week's newsletter brings because I'm sure I'm sure it will be in there. I'm sure the next iteration will be in there. But um, thank you so much for joining us, Michelle. I have loved this conversation, um, loved having you as a guest. But for our listeners, please could you just tell us a little bit about what you're up to at the moment, what you're doing. I know you've been working with some amazing companies in the space um, and how they can get in touch and find out more about what you're up to. Yeah, oh, thanks, Jess. I've loved being on with you and the team this morning. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, It's always a learning day for me as well. And I just love being in it. It's such an exciting space. Um, As I said, I've spent a long time in women's health and, and I still am and I'm loving it. I love the innovation. And so I work with, you know, any client with regard to if they're in a startup and they're just beginning or they're looking to really grow and they're a bit further along in their journey, or if they're a much bigger, more established company all the way up to kind of FTSE 100 companies, if they are looking or they are playing in the women's health market right now, I can really help them to develop and grow Um, in a way that is clinically and commercially intelligent. So I have that background, I have that knowledge, I have that experience so that they can deliver what they set out to do and have the impact that they want to have, Um, but in the kind of most resource clever way with regard to money and time and bringing people on board. So I really do sort of parachute in as that kind of chief medical officer, chief strategic officer, um, and, and help companies move on to the next step wherever they're at. So, yeah, do definitely look me up. My company is MFG Health Consulting, and you can email me um, on drmfgriffin at gmail.com. And, yeah, I'd love to have a chat with you and find out what you're doing because I love to know what's happening in this space. So please do get in touch. Amazing. Well, Michelle, I don't think it's going to be the last time we hear from you. And so I look forward to the next time, but have a wonderful week. And to all the listeners, we'll see you next time.